Hey folks, welcome to Florida Uncut, the podcast all about the protection and connection of wild Florida and the people that are making it happen. We have Clay Henderson on the line, and he has a long career, an extensive career as an environmental lawyer, an educator, and a writer. He has been involved in the acquisition of hundreds of thousands of acres and has served so much in his career from president of the Florida Audubon Society, the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation, two terms as a county commissioner in Volusia County, and was the executive director of the Institute for Water and Environmental Resilience at Stetson University. And what we're here to talk about today is uh, his most recent book, which I'm very excited about, called Forces of Nature. And it is a history of Florida land conservation. However, I'll just apologize right now, we were not able to dive too deep into the book. We were telling too many stories and just just listening, but I do want to let you know there's an amazing overview of his book that's going to be, it's a YouTube video from the Corridor Connect where I met or where I first heard about Clay. I'm going to share that. Please watch that. There are some unbelievable stories. We hear a little bit of them here, but I, I honestly just feel like I butchered this interview. Clay was so great, and I could have done a better job of setting up the book itself, but please go check it out. I've got a link to it, and it's going to go really well hand-in-hand with this interview as well as the book. You can find all that in the show notes, and let's go ahead and dive in. Hey folks, welcome to Florida Uncut, the podcast about connecting the average Floridian with the people behind the connection and protection of wild Florida. Uh, Clay Henderson, welcome to the show. Uh, good to be with you. Yes, and you are not joining us from Florida right now. You're you're up in the mountains. What, what are you doing up there? Is it vacation? Are you are you are you going up there just to kind of see see what's going on, getting a break from the the heat? Yeah, I need I needed a break, and so I'm living right outside of Charlottesville. Uh, Virginia. I'm looking up at the Blue Ridge Mountains, about 12 miles south of uh, Shenandoah National Park. And I said, if I had to give up the beach, I'd have to go find the mountains. And so I'm I'm here uh, here commuting with the mountains. It's pretty good. Oh, we we need that. Us Floridians got to get out in the you know the more uh, I don't know maybe the more traditional wilderness or the traditional nature that a lot of people connect with. They don't realize Florida is is what it is. So. There, it's a little more in your face, you know. You oh yeah, I mean, it, I, I'm I'm fascinated by it. I mean, I've been around deer all my life, but I feel like I'm living with deer now. You know, I mean, I get to see them for a whole year and they're in the yard every day, and I get to see how they respond to the seasons, and it's uh, it's been a great learning experience. That is awesome. So. Uh, you know, I learned about your story a little bit more. Uh, I'd heard you before. I heard you talk on Welcome to Florida, but I mm-hmm. didn't make the connection with more of your story until hearing your your talk at the Corridor Connect. And you went through the history of conservation in Florida. But I, I kind of want to go through your personal history. Where were you brought up? And what were some of those early experiences that got you interested in this world specifically? Sure. I'd say I mean, the first thing that's, that, that uh, might be interested to know is I'm actually a sixth-generation Floridian. And, and I would say that one of the early influences of me that frankly got me interested in history was that my grandmother, uh, who was born uh, in a log cabin in the 19th century, actually took me and showed me the log cabin where she was born. It was still there. 
And, and, you know, when you can connect and make that physical connection with that much history, and then, then think about just the changes that you've seen in your own lifetime. You know, it, it, it really is something incredible that's, that happened in Florida. We've gone from backwoods log cabins to uh, metropolis, uh, you know, just in a few generations. Where was that cabin? That was in North Florida, Hamilton County, outside of uh, Jasper. Uh, and that's where my great, great, whatever grandfather would have come into the state just as soon as it became a territory. So that's how, how far back. And I've got some great old memories from up there around the Suwannee River. And, and uh, it, it, that was totally untouched, even at that time. Is it still standing? Do you know? I think it is. I, I, it's it, it's a, it's probably in need of a lot of repair, but uh, it's still standing. Well, I mean, that, yeah, the houses built in the '90s need a lot of repair. I'm sure that one uh, does too. Well, it's yeah. No, of course, the hurricane just blew through there, so I I, I, just, I, I don't I don't know, you know, how things are. But I, I lived most of my life in New Smyrna uh, on the East Coast uh, from the time I was about ten years old, and it was still a small, sleepy beach town uh, in my youth. And then, uh, you know, Disney uh, and the mouse came to Central Florida and that changed uh, everything. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we're very much influenced by the tremendous growth uh, that has occurred throughout Central Florida and Florida generally. And so for me, it was I went away to law school. I came back home and was just uh, taken aback by how much had changed in just a, a short period of time. And and uh, that really got my interest in what, what could we do, uh, how could we do a better job of, uh, of controlling growth? And that's, that's really kind of how I, I launched into it. Do you think it took leaving and coming back to see that stark difference versus watching it gradually happen over those years you were gone? Absolutely. Uh, you know, to, when, when it's happening every day, it's happening in slow motion and it's hard to grasp uh, what those changes are. But when you're away for a while and you come back and you see it, it it's stark. And, uh, and that's what I've seen here in this last year. And in my book tour, what I call my victory lap around the state, I'm, I'm seeing things that, oh, I don't remember that being there like just last year. So mm. things, uh, things are happening at an even more accelerated state uh, right now than they have been before. That that's what you know. That's my experience too. I was gone almost a decade out west in the mountains, and uh, and working in different national parks, and uh, coming back to start a family with my wife, who's also from here. And I, I think that stark difference is what we just uh, it was blown away by, and it was like I have to get involved. And there was so much happening, but I you know all this is still relatively new to me in the sense of understanding the depth and the the, the history of it. Um, what are some of those early things you started doing? You've, you've got your career going, you've got to start, you know, you have a job and you're, 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 you have life's responsibilities. What were those things that you were doing to start to piece together some sort of action plan? Sure. And I, I think that, um, it, it's, a, it's a good starting point. I, uh, um, as I said, I was very much involved in, in historic, uh, in history, interested in history. So I actually first got involved in historic preservation, you know, trying to save some of the older buildings uh, in town from being uh, demolished uh, for, for new McMansions and new things and really work with the town to try to uh, make its history kind of uh, uh, be part of the story. 
And, and then there was uh, a situation where a major developer from out of town came in and bought uh, a lot of property at the north end of the island at Ponce Inlet and announced the plans to build uh, uh, five 20-story condos, 650 units overlooking the Atlantic Ocean. And several of us just said, this is just wrong because it was just such a beautiful place. The, the, the dunes were untouched. It was a, a great spot. There were still uh, still wildlife up there, not, you know, turtles and foxes and and uh, a great place to fish. And then all of a sudden this was going to be uh, a massive development. And we, we got involved. Uh, we, we fought it tooth and nail. And uh, in the end, we lost. And a lot of people that go through that experience says, well, that was awful. You know, I'll never do that again. It was a waste of time. But out of that, I got to meet a person, uh, several people that changed my life. But one person in particular that uh, I highlight in the book, and his name was Walter Boardman. He was uh, at that point way up in years. He was in his 70s. But he, he was that wise elder statesman type. And he, he would preach to us, you know, you're, you are wasting your time. Don't don't spend all your time and energy fighting this. The only way to protect this is to figure out how to buy it. And that just seemed absolutely crazy to us because none of us had the millions of dollars that it took. But ultimately we were successful in buying, uh, uh, limiting that development, buying stuff around it, turning part of it into a park and following his advice. We, we um, uh, out of that, uh, Walter, uh, suggested that we create a local fund to be able to uh, to buy property like this uh, that should be protected when it's coming up for development. And so I led the effort in 1986 uh, in Volusia County to pass uh, a bond issue for um, for protecting and buying uh, conservation land. I had no idea when we were working on this that this was the first in the nation. No one had ever done that before. Others had talked about it, uh, but we were the first and, and failed, but we were the first uh, to be successful. And uh, that's where it all started. My gosh, man. So, so there's so much there that uh, that is so fascinating is first failing at this this specific spot. I'm sure that felt incredibly defeating. But how were the old timers? What was their perspective on it? You know, just move on to the next fight like it's, it's you know, you're going to lose some. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the perspective at that point was uh, just move on to the next fight. But this was like, how many fingers can you put in the dike? I mean, this was the early 70s, the 70s early 80s. Um, it, the development was really, really moving forward. And and it just seemed uh, that that uh, that Walter was right. We needed to put our, our effort into getting the money to figure out how to get ahead of these guys and buy up the places that needed to be preserved. And that's what we did. Tell us about that first, uh, the Volusia County uh, bond. What went into that from your point of view? What what what, um, what were you doing as a job at that point that allowed you to, to assist with that so much? Well, I just started uh, practicing law. I was a young lawyer in my 20s. Um, I had been a, uh, a city attorney at a, in my, a small town and kind of learned the way city halls worked. So, you know, that was a plus to kind of understand how they did the, the land development process. 
Um, but as, as noted, we really had no idea how to put this together. We, we looked at the state programs. They had, there was a, a small state program at the time. It was called the Environmental Endangered Lands Program and then later the CARL program. But these, these programs, it's hard to believe, they only had about $30 million a year uh, for the whole state. And uh, we passed this $20 million bond issue. It seems like nothing today, but that was a lot of money back then. And as you see, almost as much as what the state had. So what we decided to do was put, try to use the program that, so that we could match with both uh, the, the water management district or the Carl program to be able to you know, double or triple our money. And since we were the only ones out there that had, uh, had money as a partnership, our projects uh, got to the top. And so we were able uh, with that small amount of money you know, to purchase uh, almost 100,000 acres uh, of land uh, in the county and, and to protect it from future development. So uh, we got a head start, we took advantage of it, and we worked partnerships every way we could. Why did you think this way? <laughs> and what were the people around you thinking about the way you were going about it? Well, again, I, I mean, I think back to, to the rest of it is Walter's story. Walter's had this experience that we didn't have. He had been a, uh, an educator. He was a superintendent of schools in a county uh, in New York. He retired uh, at age 61 and decided to go hike the Appalachian Trail. He was the 20th person to actually through hike the Appalachian Trail. He got done with that and he got involved in uh, this big, massive uh, project to end the uh, a nuclear power plant on the Hudson River and really kind of started that effort there. And then when he thought he was going to be retired again, he got a call from a, a, a small group of scientists that had just formed a new organization and they invited him to be their first executive director, and that's the organization we now know as the Nature Conservancy, the largest environmental organization now in the world. And we got lucky. When he finally retired, he, he moved down to Volusia County and taught us all how to do this. Was he the one that was also your neighbor? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the, what, what you really learn from him is not only that, uh, that, that buying it's the only way, but you really also learn that really part of the lure of conservation is that one person can make a difference. And you look at all these major parks and preserves from one end of Florida to the other, there's usually some local activist who's gotten involved, who's made all this happen. And they may not, and they, they can come from all, uh, all, all types of life. They're, they're not, uh, uh, they may not have started out as an environmentalist, but they turned into finding a way to protect uh, these important resources in their community. So, so as you became more active, you in turn met more people, learned more of the history. What was maybe surprising to you about the history of Florida conservation? Was it, were there more heroes than you expected? I know eventually it got to the point that you had this knowledge base to, to write this book, but what were some of those early learnings that were either surprising or, or maybe a misconception you held? Well, I, I think it's what I, it, it, I learned that we had a fascinating history. And uh, even there in, in my uh, neck of the woods in, in Volusia County, there, I learned about a fellow named Robert or Rupert 
Longstreet, who also had been an educator. There's a school in Daytona Beach, elementary school named uh, for him Longstreet Elementary. And he, uh, he got really involved in trying to protect some of the historical sites in the area and was focused on these uh, old Indian mounds. And he had actually gone on to protect some of these first, these early Indian mounds that are now part of state national parks. And then uh, went on to become the president of the Florida Audubon Society. So it was uh, interesting to see this local fellow who had not only got involved locally, but it also worked to expand this throughout the state. So that that was an important story uh, to pick up. And then beyond that um, was uh, you know beginning to to learn uh, there was a, there was a pelican rookery that was right outside of my office and. And it was beautiful. It had several hundred pelicans uh, that were on this small mangrove island. And, and it was an interesting realization to, to learn that this pelican island uh, was, at that time, probably a, a small percentage of the total population of pelicans. This was it. This was, there was, this was one of the most northern rookeries in the state. And then to find that, of all people, President Theodore Roosevelt had tried to protect it back in the early 1900s. So one of the great early surprises for me is that, you know, we all come to learn the story of Pelican Island, that that he actually protected Pelican Island in Brevard County, and that became the very first National Wildlife Refuge. But by executive order, he signed 10 different uh, orders that protected a million acres in Florida. And that's a story I, it just hasn't been told. I mean, the guy's on Mount Rushmore for a lot of reasons, but that's reason enough for me. There's a guy by signing his name to a one-page document, several of them protected a million acres in Florida. I live near one of those other 10 properties, uh, Passage Key. Passage Key, that's yeah, right. Over yeah. over by me, I looked at it yesterday. I mean, it's hard to see from where I like to recreate at Emerson Point, but I was with my kids down at the beach and looking out at it, thinking about that, that, you know, knowing I was going to talk to you, I was like, that is just so wild that that was on the radar, even yeah. just a thought at the time, the small 60-acre island. But, but think about this. See, this is where it all comes together. Um, before anyone knew who Teddy Roosevelt was, he was a rough rider. And that's where he made his point to history. So they were stationed in Tampa for about six weeks before they got on that ship to, uh, to go to, uh, to Cuba. And during that time, he explored a lot of areas around Tampa Bay. His uncle had actually written a book on birds in Florida, and he had that book with him. And so he saw Passage Key. He saw some of these other things. He'd never seen a pelican before. He was fascinated by the pelicans. But the thing that made the most incredible uh, impression with him is that uh, he saw on the docks in downtown Tampa piles and piles and piles of thousands of dead birds that were all to be shipped back to New York to be turned into ladies' hats. And that just absolutely disgusted him. And as president, just a few years later, he was in a position to do something about that. The stat, what is it, 1880 to 1900, 90% of the birds here in Florida were killed to make women's hats, mostly mostly in Britain, or is it kind of split between New York and and, and European culture? It was was New York. That was the connection. Uh, They were put on ships to go back to New York. And you think about this. I mean, everybody... uh, 
uh, loves the, the roseate spoonbill and the flamingo. All of them, all of them in Florida were wiped out by 1900. To make some hats. Yeah, that's right. Think about that, man. There were, and the, the amount of people on the planet at that time, how big the repercussions were, and just how much more our repercussions can be today if we didn't think a little more logically about this stuff. I mean, it's just, it's scary to think of our power. Oh, it's true. And it, and it, and some of those birds didn't come back. I mean, there were probably billions of the passenger pigeon. And then there were uh, the, the other bird is the Carolina parakeet. Yep. That uh, was the North America's only parrot. It was absolutely beautiful bird. And uh, we shot them up to extinction. They had a, they had a, uh, they had a flaw in their yeah. evolutionary, you know, decision making was when, you know, one died, the others would come to mourn, which basically That's just right. made them targets. That's right. You could kill right. 50 to 100 at one time if you wanted. And uh, yeah, I told my wife that the other day. I mean, it's just when you think about it, you know, the passenger pigeon was what maybe the most abundant bird on planet Earth at one time. Billions yep. and billions. I mean, there was there's stories about them blacking the sky for hours, you know, as as right. flocks flew overhead. And it's unthinkable to think that those birds would ever be anywhere. And, you know, over 100 years ago, the last one lived. I mean, if, if the passenger pigeon can go down, anything can go down. Well, that's right. I, I hope that you've seen, you got to see uh, Ken Burns' recent uh, documentary on the buffalo. You know, but he tells the story, you know, I mean, there were maybe 50 million buffalo and, and they were shot down to less than i think probably less than 200 there but it down to no, almost nothing um well you know as you dove into this and as you saw these these stories a lot of the stories in your book man florida's some of the most precious gemstones of our natural landscapes were protected through bets through <laughs> random <laughs> Fishing yep. event through all kinds of just very Florida esque stories. Do you find that in other parts of the world? Do you find that kind of just roll of the dice with the future of things like like you do here? Oh, I think so. Um, but but I think with Florida, I mean, Florida's always had this sort of uh, you know uh, it was was it Carl Hostin talks about the axis of weirdness. You know, there was always sort of the the, 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 there's always an ability for those stories. I mean, when you figure that that uh, Sir Lancelot uh, Jones, the son of an enslaved person who became one of the best fishing guides in Biscayne Bay, you know, had the opportunity while taking presidents out fishing, you know, to pitch, this needs to be a national park. You know, that, that's just, uh, that's a Florida story. Absolutely. Bought that island, I think, for $300. Yeah, dad did. yeah. And then the richest man in the world wanted to buy it for, for uh, the, his oil refinery, an oil deep water uh, oil port, and he refused. And uh, so uh, that's why it's Biscayne National Park and not the biggest oil port on the Atlantic coast. So, so learning this and piecing together this history over the course of your career, wh what are some of those themes for folks that, because I know you taught for years as well at Stetson. Um, what, what are some of those major messages you try to get across to your students when it comes to the work you can do to protect what's left of Florida? Well, I think the most important thing is, is to learn as much as you can 
about your local environment. Uh, it, it's hard to generalize around Florida because we have so many different and diverse environments from the wetlands and, and the Florida uh, Everglades to the coral reefs to the, even the scrub in the central part of Florida, Longleaf Pine in North Florida. Learn as much as you can about it and its, its ecological needs and out of that, the habitat that it creates uh, that for specific uh, for specific animals, and then you know somebody taught me a long time ago: let the land talk to you. You know, you know, get to know it, uh, get to see what its needs are, and then then out of that, you need to learn how to tell its story. You know, it's it's not just like we got to go save you know Greenacre. You've got to be able to tell a persuasive story of why that piece of dirt with those trees and those animals is central to our story, to our sense of place, to our quality of life, and find ways to connect people with that. I mean, Florida, you know, it's a, we're a big state, we're growing, but but most everybody is from somewhere else. Their idea of history is what they learned in Boston or Philadelphia, their idea of the outdoors, maybe the Adirondacks or the Catskills or the Appalachians. Um, and, and, and it's this, this place with, with rattlesnakes and water moccasins and alligators, you know, it's, that's not, they're, they're warm and fuzzy, you know, so you've got to be able to learn how to tell the story in a way that people connect to it. Do you have an example of, of, uh, storytelling as a persuasive tool for one of the protected lands that we have now? Yeah, yeah, no, it's. Uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, the, there are there's a story behind every one of them. Uh, I think that uh, an interesting one is um, is Pensacola. Uh, Earl Bowden was the editor of the local paper. Uh, he was unusual in the sense that he was their editorial cartoonist. You know, he he didn't he, his written word was not his medium. His medium was that he had that knack to be able to draw a cartoon that depicted the corruption of local officials, you know, the greed and the greedy developers and anything else like that. And it, and it connected with people. He's also a historian, an amateur historian. Pensacola is a very historic place. The, if you don't want to, if you want to get in the middle of a of a historian fight, argue which is older, Pensacola or St. Augustine, but that's a different story. But he would he would have been part of that. And so he saw the importance of protecting uh, the beaches there that had not yet been developed as something that was absolutely critical to their quality of life. And oh, by the way, there were some pretty historic places there including uh, Fort Pickens, where the Civil War could have almost got started, and, and, as, and a little piece of land that actually was the very first conservation effort in Florida. It was several thousand acres that President John Quincy Adams set aside for its oak trees, not because he thought the oak trees were particularly beautiful, but because if you made wood out of those oak trees, cannonballs would bounce off the sides and the oldest ship in the United States Navy, USS Constitution, still sits in Boston Harbor and it was made from those trees. So how did that property get protected? It was 52 editorial cartoons that Bowden drew for the Pensacola newspaper that got the attention of Congress and people 
to make Gulf Islands National Seashore a reality. And, and that's just, it's just hard to believe, but that's what it was. It got, it connected uh, the people uh, who could see the corruption that was going into their development and the need to protect. And it got the attention of members of Congress and the rest is history. Memes do move the needle. They do. They do. That's right. You know, the other famous one, same, almost same story, a little bit different is um, uh, Ding Darling. Uh, you know, everybody on the West Coast has been to Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge. Ding Darling was a Pulitzer Prize winning editorial cartoonist, I think from St. Louis. And, but he fell in love with that Sanibel Captiva area. And uh, then he got this idea that, that, uh, that, you know, everybody wants to go duck hunting, needs to get a, a permit. Well, why don't you do it the same way the Postal Service does, which is you, you, you come up with some very beautiful creative stamps uh, that you would buy as a supplement to your permit. And that's how the duck stamp was born. It generated millions and millions of dollars for purchase of National Wildlife Refuges including that area uh, around uh, Sanibel and Captiva, which we now know is Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge, which is the most visited national wildlife refuge in the whole country. How have you noticed public buy-in over the years from maybe the beginning of this story and the stories you told until now? Is there a big change in public perception or, or have we always been supportive of, of protecting our environment? It's just a matter of finding the ways to do it. Oh, I think that's part of being a Floridian. I mean, you, if you're here and you grew up with it, you know it, you appreciate it, it's part of your life. If you made that decision to leave New York and move to Fort Lauderdale, you know, you got to see the beautiful beaches or the Everglades or, or just the, the different environment that we have. And so you've come to, you've come to appreciate it and love it. And, and so I think that latent support has always been there. And the way that you, we see that is by the electoral support, the support of the voters. So think about this. Statewide, uh, voters in Florida have approved authority to come up with millions of dollars to buy land in 1963, 1972, uh, 1998, and 2014. And that has produced literally billions of dollars of land for conservation. And that's really, that's part of the, the, part of the awful story of Florida or the unique story of Florida is that when it became a state, federal government uh, transferred about 22 million acres to Florida. And they, with the understanding that they could sell that off to promote development, well, they gave it away. You know, before 1900, they had given away almost all of that land, 20 million acres uh, to railroad developers in Hamilton, Biston, uh, and, and others. And so part of this story is that in the 120 years since, we bought back 11 million acres and that no other state's done anything close to that. And it's because of the public support uh, for this. And not only at the state level, I mentioned that, but you know, we were the first in Volusia in 1986, but 23 other counties have also voted to tax themselves um, uh, to bring billions of dollars uh, online for also local acquisition. And it, it's not a, a, a Democrat versus Republican thing. We've had Democrat and Republican governors support this. I think the, the, the last uh, election, the last election, 
there were three counties uh, that were on uh, the ballot, Volusia, Manatee, Sarasota, right, and Collier. And uh, all of them voted overwhelmingly Republican, but all of them voted for the tax by 60, 70 percent of the vote. And some of those for the third time, I think. Yeah, Volusia's third time. Wow. So I live in Manatee County and I, I serve on our Environmental Lands Acquisition Committee. Okay. And, uh, yeah, we, we voted in the millage approval rate, uh, right when I moved to this County specifically in 2020, how, how do we get the rest of the counties on board? How do you do that? How do you even go about making that happen? Well, we started, we sort of, we started this after, uh, Volusia and, uh, it was, uh, we had a fellow in the community, Reed Hughes, who was on the board of nature conservancy and, uh, Florida Audubon Society. And he said, look, we got something going here. We need to introduce this to the rest of the state. And so we held a conference. I'm thinking it was 1987, invited people from all over. And one of the people that I got to meet when in this conference that put it on was a fellow by the name of Larry Harris, who was a biology professor at the University of Florida. And one of the great takeaway ideas that came out of that conference was this need to protect wildlife corridors because as Florida was uh, now growing so fast, our wildlife habitat was becoming more fragmented and we needed to try to find ways to connect all this green land so that wildlife would be able to take advantage of it. So in any event, out of that, a number of uh, other programs started to take root around the state. Uh, Brevard uh, was, was an early one, Flagler, another early one. And, and it just multiplied. And so I would say now over 20 counties have approved this, over $10 billion uh, has been accessed. Some places, it just hasn't taken hold. I mean, I'll give you a couple of examples. One is uh, Orange County, Orlando. That's one of the big metropolitan area. Uh, there have been many efforts to try to push this. It's never happened. Another, St. John's County, uh, where there been various efforts to, to, to try to make it take uh, hold, and it hasn't. But uh, but in so many other areas, uh, it's proved to be very popular. And they've been um, just a, a, something else to get people talking, get people interested in, in, in buying in their own backyard. Um, you, you've seen tons of initiatives. You've talked about those years. You've seen uh, uh, the voters approve different sort of initiatives. And you've been instrumental in a lot of those all the way up into present day with the formation and kind of the, I guess, rebranding that's called the Florida Wildlife Corridor. Yeah. Uh, and that is, from my point of view, really helping break this idea of Florida conservation and it connected Florida to the mainstream through the films and through some of the things like Carlton Ward and his team are doing. Uh, but take us through, wh- wh- where does that initiative sit in your perspective yeah, I'll give you a quick history of it. Um, I, and it started, as I said, with, um, with Larry Harris. He was one that really kind of came up with this uh, idea. Uh, Reed Noss uh, was a student there at the time. Uh, another, uh, he taught for many years at the uh, at University of Central Florida, uh, promoted this idea of connectivity is very important. But we'll fast forward to, um, I'm going to say 1990-ish, and there was another really smart fellow who came on the scene. His name was Mark Benedict. And he had uh, really gotten involved in, in this concept of greenways, you know, that we really need to create this, these, these, these passageways, this connectedness 
he had uh, he worked for the Conservancy in Southwest Florida, and then for Thousand Friends of Florida, and then Governor Childs uh, appointed a, a committee, the Florida Greenways uh, Council or Commission, it was chaired by Lieutenant Governor McKay, but also Nathaniel Reed, who was another iconic figure in in, in Florida's environment, and they came forward with the first conceptual map. Of, of how to create, you know, this interconnected uh, system. But at this point, it's basically, uh, you know, a one-page map with some pretty pictures on it and we really needed to make it more detailed. And in the meantime, the, 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 the new G- computer product called GIS started coming available and the Geo Center at University of Florida became established. And some really smart people, one of them, Peggy Carr, it was part of that another iconic uh, family in Florida, the Carr family, uh, headed up that program. And so the legislature created uh, another, I guess, a committee to succeed the Greenways Commission. It was the Greenways Coordinating Council. I ended up chairing that. The plan was to get a big group of folks in a room, work with those the, the people at University of Florida, the Geoplan Center, and try to come up with a really detailed map of how all this could take place. And, and so that, that was the genesis. It was called the, the Greenways uh, Ecological Corridor in a map uh, that put this stuff together, showing that if we're really serious about saving Florida, we really need to protect about 50% of it. And so that was the start. Unfortunately, uh, Mark Benedict, he, he, he passed away very young, all too young. But he left that really as a legacy for us to move forward on. And then what has really happened, and I I take my hat off to Carlton Ward and his compatriots, you know, it's all about storytelling. And he is a gifted storyteller and has used his his ability of, of, of photography, both still and visual, to be able to convey this message. And so he, it's through his storytelling, we've taken this to this next level where people can now begin to visualize what Florida would look like if we do this. And more importantly, what Florida look like if we don't, because then it really is just going to be one massive sprawl that connects the state. And we need to have it just the opposite, which is some kind of green infrastructure to uh, to connect the state from the, from the panhandle to the Everglades. So that's sort of the genesis of how all this came together. And something that I think people might be surprised by when they, you know, see development in the places that they've cherished or just lived in for a long time, that we are not starting this uh, journey from from nothing. There's a quite a decent amount of progress that's already been made. Um, when you look at the Florida Wildlife Corridor, like, yeah, that's a, that's a, a highly ambitious, amazing idea, but you know, how close are we to that? And you're like, well, we're well over fifty percent there. I think that surprises a lot of people. Can, can you talk to us through or, or share some stats about maybe the overall goal, uh, what we should be aiming for as Fl- Floridians to protect, you know, percentage wise of the state, where we are, you know, kind of set it up as, as we're not we're not starting this from scratch. No, and I think that was part of this, this last discussion is that this discussion has been going on for 30 years. In the meantime, Florida, of course, has doubled its population, you know, making it even harder to be able to complete. Uh, but we made a substantial amount of progress. There, there are various visions that are out there that are all roughly similar. The, the wildlife corridor map uh, is about 18 million acres. 
of which 11 million acres have been protected. So I'm going to throw in a lot of numbers, but let's try to keep it simple. So right now, 32% of the state land is now protected in conservation lands. That's pretty impressive. Now, it's, it's not as impressive as California or Nevada or some of these Western states because they, 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 the federal government never gave up those lands. And so they have large, vast areas of, of, of places that have not, uh, that are still, you know, as open lands are protected. But Florida had to buy it back. So 11 million acres, 32% of the state we have protected. The corridor map uh, calls for the protection of about 18 million. So that's about 7 million acres shy. Um, during the 20 years that we had two great programs, Preservation 2000 and Florida Forever, have protected about 3 million acres. So that shows you we, you know, our capacity, we can do this. We have the capacity to do it. But at the same time, we're swimming upstream uh, because another, you know, as we're talking today, another thousand, at least another thousand people move to Florida. The, the low hanging fruit has been picked. That's correct. Low hanging fruit has been picked. And so, um, so what can we realistically get? There's a, a nature conservancy uh, map that was put together looking at a lot of science that uh, also has around, looks at about 50% of the state would need to be protected to protect the biodiversity. Thousand Friends of Florida did their 2070 plan, uh, which came up with about the same uh, result. Uh, I think where I've come down is that that those are great goals. We need to work toward that, connect where we can. But I, I think the real the bottom the real bottom threshold is 40 percent, which is absolutely doable uh, with the with the funding resources that that we have we're still going to have to pick up the pace and that's why we're going to need more partnerships at the local level and get the state more engaged in, in the actual process of getting it acquired and do some more innovative things like uh, working with uh, large landowners, particularly in agriculture to be able to acquire what's called conservation easements. Let, let them continue to run range their cattle there or their other agricultural ex exercise but at the same time, give up what those future development rights would be. And, uh, and that, that, that has some promise. And I think that's also been an important message that Carlton and his group has been promoting out there, that we can work with these big landowners uh, to promote conservation and agriculture. Yes. And, and if you haven't, find a cattle ranch near you that can give you a tour. We had some listeners of this new show, Florida Uncut, that 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 did that after hearing our first interview with Jim Strickland, a rancher in Central Florida. Yeah. Um, he was at the Corridor Connect too. We've become good friends. He's like, I'm texting him all the time. We're 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 buddies now. And you, you ride out in Blackbeard's Ranch where he owns five thousand acres. If you don't see a cow in your immediate vicinity, you'd have no idea you were on a cattle ranch. Yeah, it feels like a very natural extension of Mayaka River State Park, which is adjacent to it. These are not, you know, clear-cut areas for, you know, not all the time, but so many of them, like you said, are, are the animals don't know they're on a cattle ranch. They use this just as they would uh, all the other lands that they're moving through. It is very beneficial to protect this and make sure it can't degress into something like, a, a, you know, a development or a parking lot or whatnot. Um have you ever had anybody ask you, like, well, why is that a bad thing? 
Why is development even a bad thing, especially realtors or so many people? So that, I mean, th that industry does support a lot of people here. Uh, it just seems like a given fact that we all agree that it's bad. But do you ever have just pushback on the idea itself being a bad idea? Florida is developing, is going to continue to develop. What, what has been unfortunate is that uh, after the 10 years ago, after the Great Recession, as we now call it, Florida basically dismantled its system of statewide oversight of growth. And that's just allowed us to go back to the wild, wild west days where people can do whatever they want. And so the, the easiest way to develop a piece of land is to go out there, clear cut every tree on it, uh, grade it down, stick uh, these houses on top of each other that all look just alike and uh, sell them for an ungodly amount of money. Poorly built. On top of that. Yeah, poorly built, just soulless development. And then, of course, name it after a heron or a pelican or something, you know, <laughs> that used to live there, Panther Acres. So, you know, what What we, during the time that we had state oversight and standards against urban sprawl and, and, and a state commitment to protecting important natural areas, we were able to work with some developers to be able to uh, think about conservation techniques as they were moving forward. And, and I just say, if we're really serious about uh, connecting this corridor, completing this project, we need to think about development this way. For every acre we develop, we got to figure out a way to protect another acre. You know, if we do it one-on-one -on -one like that, we'll actually get above 40, approaching 50%. And and I found that, you know, there are developers that, you know, particularly as they're dealing with more sensitive land and um, are, are willing to uh, make those efforts to be able to protect the areas that need to be protected and move their um, impacts to areas that would have less of an impact. So it can happen. And there are examples around the state of, 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 of good projects, not, not nearly enough. But unfortunately now, uh, with lack of state oversight and and even worse, the legislature telling local governments that they can't uh, do what they used to be able to do to protect uh, growth. Um, it's back to the Wild West, and developers pretty much do whatever they want to right now. And it's important to note that this, you know, one-for-one -one swap development for uh, conservation, one acre each, that's not a pie-in-the-sky solution, that we, we were once there. We were. I mean, during the time of Preservation 2000, it actually coincided with uh, growth growth management in full. And during that amount of time, we protected as much land as we allowed to be developed. And so it, we, we've demonstrated it can be done. What are some of the unique changes? You talked about conservation easements on working lands. That's, that's one kind of unique uh, view for this last 8% of the state, if we're trying to go from, you know, 32% protected to 40 at minimum, what are going to be some of those key either skills or key uh, methods or some of those changes in strategy that you foresee to get that last or get that next 8%? Well, I think the, the, the low-hanging fruit that is available to us now is working with these large agricultural landowners. I mean, that's a fact. Uh, you look at the last national wildlife that was National Wildlife Refuge that was created in Florida. It's the Everglades Headwaters. It includes all that area up along the Kissimmee River uh, north of Lake Okeechobee. And it's a recognition that uh, most of those 
properties are in private hands, will stay in private hands, and we need to just work with them to try to be able to continue conservation practices while buying up land that's available. So that's low-hanging fruit. The other example is, is I'll, I'll use Babcock as an example. Here's an area that you know was a, a ranch over a large period of time. Development extended out toward it. It would have been or is you know a, a, a area that could have been developed for massive amount of homes over you know billions of dollars in sales. But the state and others were able to work with the developer and the family uh, and the local governments to acquire tens of thousands of acres of the best of it for protection, for conservation, but also work with a developer to be able to use a lot of low income, low uh, impact uh, techniques, including the use of solar power and uh, and uh, stormwater management to be able to put in a, a type of development that can be a model for sustainability going forward. So those are, I think, the approaches we're going to see. In the next iteration of that Everglades Headwaters project is the Everglades to Gulf conservation area that's going to be yeah. taking place from basically you know, the, the central, south, central, western side of the state, which is, man, right in my backyard. I'm so excited. When I was a kid, the Everglades Headwater Project was kicking off. And, man, I I kicked myself because I didn't know any of this stuff. I didn't know what was happening. And I remember my mom, also born and raised in Frostproof, uh, lives there to this day. I was just at her house this weekend. And, uh, you know, the big, beautiful couple hundred acre cow pasture next to our house was all renaturalized um through this program and it was you know she's like it's such a shame it was a beautiful rolling hills beautiful it was very picturesque and now it's you know this scrubby looking kind of mismatch of, of ecological space that they're trying to, to get back to normal but it you know it, it doesn't look as pristine and and i kind of had that view too until it i come back and realize no mom that's a that's a wonderful initiative. What it is now is so much better. Uh, so it's interesting. It's interesting how it's always been around me, and I've never really had the eyes to see it. You know. Well, sure. I mean, take take scrub as a great example. I mean, we, we we put a lot of emphasis into protecting wetlands, which meant that we sent developers, you know, out there to the scrublands to just just knock all that stuff down and build up what they wanted to, not understanding or appreciating that that was perhaps the most biodiverse um, biodiverse ecological community in the whole state. As a matter of fact, um, the the, uh, Lake Wales Ridge National Wildlife Refuge is the only wildlife refuge in the nation that's there for the protection of endangered plants. You know, you've you've got plants out there that occur nowhere else on the planet. And, and of course, the, the scrub jay, the story of the scrub jay, our only bird that only lives in Florida. Uh, and, and it is right. Visually, people look at it and say, yeah, scrubs. It doesn't sound, you know, sexy or green or lush. It needs a rebranding like the uh, ecological greenways does. <laughs> we need to be rebranded. That's right. But, but, uh, but no, the, the scrub is, uh, is the most biologically diverse area of the state and includes plants and animals that exist nowhere else. And so that it is that mosaic of scrub and wetlands uh, and uh, and forests that make that central Florida spine so so unique. 
Well, th think about this example, Doc, again, visually. You know, people, everybody that ever looked at the Everglades early on thought it was a vast wasteland. And we elected governors literally on the promise to drain the swamp. And, of course, you've got so much of that development in South Florida that is or used to be on parts of the Everglades. But there were people who thought that would be a good national park. But people couldn't see it because they just look out at this sawgrass and said, what? That's not Yosemite. That's not Yellowstone. Where are the geysers? Where are the waterfalls? And so um, what they did is they got um, they they got Secretary of Interior, the head of the National Park Service, the president of National Audubon Society down to South Florida, and they got him up in a brand new invention called the Goodyear Blimp. And they went out there and they floated over that vast sawgrass and they came back and said, we got to make this a national park. And now today it's recognized as one of America's great national parks. But people didn't see it that way at the beginning as they saw Yosemite and Yellowstone. Is showing people an important part of this? Because making decisions in a room based on a map or based on, you know, terminology that might kind of soften the blow is an important and maybe often overlooked part getting out there and ha having a real experience with the land. Absolutely. We, we did that when we did the, uh, uh, the Volusia program early, we had a couple of sites that we knew that if we could show people what was here, that they would get it places that they'd never seen before. And so we worked out tours, you know, to bring people in, get them out in the buggy, show them the, show them the sites and like touch it and feel it and embrace it. And, and it made all the difference in the world. And, uh, and I think that's a, that, that's a lesson we've learned in a lot of other places as well. You've got to, you got to let them get out there and kick the tires. If I'm not mistaken, Jeb Bush had that experience with the Springs. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think that's true. Um, and, uh, he, he was, he, you know, he didn't grow up in Florida, grew up in Texas. Uh, his Florida experience was all in South Florida. There are no Springs in South Florida. So being able to get out and see, you know, these unique springs, we take them for granted. I mean, they were the swimming holes growing up, but we have more springs in, in Florida than any other place in the world. Absolutely. What are some of the most important things the average Floridian can do that isn't a lawyer, that isn't a, you know, works for a, a, one of these nonprofits or a decision maker? What can the average Floridian do? Well, the average Floridian can can get engaged. It's getting harder to do that. We've lost a lot of local newspapers. It's kind of hard to know what's going on at City Hall and county commission meetings, but, but try to figure out a way to learn what's going on. That's a start. The other thing is that we are blessed in almost every major community and state to have some kind of uh, environmental organization at a leadership level. And it's different in different places. I mean, uh, it could be the Sierra Club in one town. It could be the Audubon Society in another. The 40, 45 Audubon chapters around the state. Uh, there are also local programs like the Conservancy of Southwest Florida that does just a great job of getting uh, protecting lands, but getting people out on the land and things like that. So find a group like that in your area. Uh, get involved, you know, get join them, go to meetings, go on field trips. You'll find most of these places will have, you know, field trips to get out and look at the plants or look at the birds or the manatees or whatever. And, and that'll, that'll help the learning process. And as you do that, you'll start learning about others who have 
more of an experience in dealing with these lands and the importance of them, the conservation areas. And there'll be opportunities to either get involved and advocate on their behalf to try to protect them or figure out how to get your local government or the state involved in uh, uh, getting them acquired. Uh, I, I can think of several local examples where you know, just just a, an interested individual was successful in getting a piece of property on the state acquisition list and acquired or uh, made a, a local park. So there, that kind of advocacy starts with, with just regular people who learn the system, learn how to work the system, and learn how to tell that story. And uh, that's, that's, that's how we're going to get across the finish line. That's the lore of conservation. That's right. One person can make a difference. Anything else you want to share? I, I'm just, I can't thank you enough for this amount of time. This is. Oh, I've enjoyed it. I think we've got the gist of it. I think that uh, you look at Florida from one end to the other, there are stories just like that of people who've gotten involved to, to protect special places. And uh, that's, uh, and we've got such an incredible range, you know, from the, from the, the, the Florida Keys, the Everglades, to the estuaries and you know, along the coast, the scrub in the middle part of the state, the pine, Longleaf Pine and Springs areas in North Florida. It, it's a it's a wonderful state, and uh, uh, we just need to do what we can to uh, make sure that it uh, we protect these special places that that uh, enhance our quality of life and what what makes Florida special. Again, you can watch uh, a video of Clay going over the book, the stories from the book, in the show notes from the Corridor Connect this past September, as well as buying the book at clayhendersonauthor.com books. There is so much more there than we could get to.